This is from the Hekiganadoku case 80. Jaju's newborn baby. The case. Monk asks Jaju, does a newborn baby also have the six consciousnesses? Jaju said, it's like tossing a ball in a sw on swift flowing water. The monk also asked Tutsu, what is the meaning of tossing a ball in swift flowing water? Tutsu said, moment to moment, non-stop flow. The verse, six consciousness, inactive, he puts forth a question. The adepts have both discerned where he's coming from. On the boundless, swift flowing water, tossing a ball. Where it comes down, it doesn't stay. Who can watch it? So a side note on sitting through a teisho or this teisho. Feel free to adjust when needed, when really needed. And when you do so, do it slowly, do it with awareness, do it as a continuation of your practice. Sit upright, but find ease in that way of sitting. So being here in the midst of this incredible Sashin, so many fellow practitioners, we all offer the very unique opportunity to bear witness to the inner workings of our active and impulsive consciousness. Most of you have a regular practice, so you obviously are not new to Zazen. But in most cases, it's usually not so many hours of zazen over a few consecutive days. And you usually don't spend so much time in silence, having to follow a tight schedule away from your daily routines, activities. And so being exposed to this unique situation what kind of thoughts, emotions, and sensations do you encounter? Where does your attention go when you experience discomfort, irritation, impatience, anger, frustration, fear, sadness, loneliness? And how do you bear witness to a mind that uses all these experiences to weave a detailed tapestry on intricate and very personal story? It's fascinating to recognize that while we're all 
here together, following the same schedule, being exposed to the same conditions. We each have very different experiences. And we each interpret every aspect of this sheen in our own unique ways. This is important to note because we are here to learn how to bear witness to our very unique story weaving mechanisms without getting caught up in it and without propelling it further. So we can actually deconstruct the firm idea of me and my story. said many times, we are the same in very, very different ways. So we have to recognize both, the sameness and the differences. It's not a cookie-cutting style of practice. We are doing the same things getting trapped in very different ways. The structured and supportive environment of a sashin provides the optimal conditions for nurturing an innate ability, innate ability to bear witness to whatever our mind conjures up and to our impulsive and karmic reactivities. This innate capacity becomes available to us when we develop a steady and quiet inner sense of awareness through zazen and while moving about as we follow the schedule and engage with all sashin activities. Creating a sense of seamless activity during sashin means taking on the responsibility to continuously maintain a sharp level of awareness, regardless of the activity we happen to be engaged with, maybe more importantly, regardless of what we think and feel in relation to the particular activity. That's where it becomes very different for us. Right? You can have a, a group of six people doing zokin. You have different kinds of zokin. In the Chapana Sutra, the Buddha spoke about cultivating the ability to not be swayed by thoughts, emotions, sensations, and habitual patterns. Or in other words, learning to stay. In the last paragraph of this sutra, he said, develop awareness immersed in the body. Pursue it, hand it, hand it the reins, and take it as a basis. Give it a grounding. Steady it, consolidate it, and set it about properly. This is how you should train yourselves. This is how we should train ourselves. Develop awareness immersed in the body. When is the body not present? How can the body be somewhere else? 
And it's only by developing this kind of awareness that we can recognize the gravitational pull of the perpetual or karmic self as it manifests through our impulsive reactivities. There are plenty of those. And it's only by cultivating a strong spiritual power that we can start to move in a different direction. Otherwise, the direction is set. The course is set. When we look back, the course is set. And if we don't know how to look forward, look ahead with clear eyes, it will continue in the same direction. So we have to develop that kind of ability. Yet, dealing with persistent habitual patterns and the mental and physical discomfort we may experience during Sashin, we may find it quite challenging to develop the level of acute awareness the Buddha is referring to. And it's not unusual to feel that we are small and limited and therefore do not even have the strength to overcome the sway of our impulsive habitual patterns. But we need to recognize that this kind of thinking is indicative of the small self trying to recreate itself in a better version. I want to develop this kind of mental or acute awareness. I want to get somewhere else. I don't like this situation, how I feel about it, what I'm doing in my life. So as long as I am operating under the notion of me as the one who has or does not have power, I remain within the conventional realm of tariki, worldly power. In developing spiritual power, we need to let go of the sense of ownership, drop the illusory wall that separates between the small self and the great reality it is surrounded by, and actually open up to the great power of the universe. It sounds like a cliche, because we have made it a cliche. But it's actually who we are. So the great power of the universe, which is the source of Jodiki, spiritual power. And in that sense, it is not the power I have, but rather the power that I am. That power that flows through me. How do we discover that? How can we see it, experience it? So here at Sashin, we go back to the words of O Sensei, which I quoted before. The founder of Aikido, he said, Now and again, it is necessary to seclude yourself among deep mountains and hidden valleys to restore your link to the source of life. Breathe in and let yourself soar to the ends of the universe. 
Breathe out and bring the cosmos back inside. Next, bring up, breathe up all fecundity and vibrancy of the earth. Finally, blend the breath of heaven and the breath of earth with your own, becoming the breath of life itself. And to restore the link to the source of life means to become less interested in all the known details of our personal story, along with all the thoughts and emotions that sustain it. The less preoccupied we are with ourselves, the more we can open up to the great power of naked reality, which will naturally disrupt the harmful power of karma. So looking around, right? We were outside today. We took a walk yesterday. Few people said, I went, we went for a walk. That was incredible, right? It's different than sitting in the zendo. But then I asked, when you sit in the zendo, is it not there? What happens to this immense beauty? Do you need to actually see it? Can you feel it? Can you sense it? We're surrounded. The Zendo is surrounded by that. So what happens when we go inside to the Zendo and we see it in Zazen? What happens is we face ourselves again. And again, our thoughts. Again, all the emotional entanglements. It becomes louder. We go outside. We get distracted. So both going outside and going back inside work together very well. Because we can look outside, be reminded, go inside and feel it. Not as something we remember but as who we are. So can we see that as a mirror to our own immense beauty, to our own immense power? But it takes a great deal of discipline to keep coming back, to not be swayed, to not follow the great temptation of me and my story. Trigan Trumpa said, the role of discipline here is not to introduce new materials to the mind. Right? So it's not going from one kind of thoughts to a different kind of thinking. In other words, the discipline of meditation is a process of starvation. process of starvation. It's not what we do often on the cushion. We sit and we go to those thoughts. Thought comes and we just go along with that. It is a kind of entertainment for us, right? Familiar entertainment. So he says, a process of starvation. 
you don't give the ego any further food to thrive on, then you might have a glimpse of the gap in the karmic chain. And the chain of karma does not seem so continuous and permanent because you have seen the gap. You have seen the gap. And looking outside or being outside can actually remind us of that. Then he says, of course, the aspect of confusion comes back as well. But at least you begin to acknowledge and to realize that there is such a thing as a gap. That is a starting point. In that way, you begin to realize that the teachings are not just hypothetical. There is actual experience of them. You can't permanently stay in the gap. Both the fixation and the gap occur. You have both sides again and again. That is the meaning of the path. And that's what we ought to practice. Bearing witness to the entanglements, to the fixation, and then gently pulling the attention away from that, and then maintaining this attention here, not on something particular. And that's why it becomes challenging for us. What should I focus on, people ask. Can you give me something to think about, something to work with? Sometimes we work with a koan, we work with something. But at other times, or before we even get to working with koans, it's very important to get comfortable with not having something to chew on. Having nothing to grasp. That's the, starva- the process of starvation he's talking about. We, we forget, or maybe some of us don't know, that we have to keep coming back to that nothingness, actual nothingness, nothing to grasp, nothing to hold on to, no ground to stand on. And learn to be comfortable, gently, but continuously, repeatedly, go there. This is exactly what we're trained to do here at Sashin. We become aware of the drifting attention as it follows our senses. And we keep directing it back to the intensity of the present situation, which at the beginning may feel too much to bear. Because we're not so comfortable being without the great story of me. That's the reason why we find ourselves gravitating back to the comic entanglements, becoming fixated on the details of the story and keep perpetuating the karma that creates it. So we may think, well, this is, I feel this way because of karmic entanglements, but actually it's not quite true all the time. I may feel this way now because I am now perpetuating what was before. 
I am now creating the continuation of what was before. But if I'm not aware of it, I'm not aware of it. So I can explain it by saying, well, it's that. However, when we do experience gaps in the perpetual story and become more comfortable with not knowing who we are, there's a magical experience of a sense of weightlessness. It's a kind of primordial, innocent, childlike energy that feels like it is flowing out of an endless fountain. In the commentary to this koan, it says, a person who studies the path must become again like an infant. Then, praise and blame, success and fame, unfavorable circumstances and favorable, favorable environments, none of these can move him. Though he's, his eyes see form, he's the same as a blind person. Though his ears hear sound, He's the same as a deaf person. He's like a fool, like an idiot. His mind is motionless like Mansumeru. This is the place where patchwork monks, us, really and truly acquire power. This is that alignment with the source. When we are born, it doesn't take any effort because we don't know how to do anything else. Then we grow up and we create ways to become misaligned. So we have to find our way back to that. It's kind of strange, but that's the way it is. So what state of being is that? To be like an idiot remain motionless and not be moved by the winds of conventional reality. To not be moved by what most people are not just moved by, but convinced that's the only way to be. Sometimes we are convinced. It's the only way I can react or should react to this situation. Adjust as needed. So to remain motionless, not to be moved by the winds, inner winds, other winds. How do we do that? So think about everything that's weighing you down at this point in your life. Anything. All the karmic intricacy 
all the hopes and fears. And whatever it is that you have become vested in, psychologically and emotionally, and then ask, where is it when I sit down, when I walk around, when I eat, go to the bathroom, take a shower, go to sleep, wake up, clean the floor, do laundry? Where is it? Of course, you can answer this question in a very convincing way. But, where does your attention go to find an answer to this question? Where does it have to go in order to answer this question, whether to yourself or to another? And more importantly, what do you turn away from when you are engaged in answering? In other words, when the awareness remains in the body, and the body is fully merged with the current situation, we reestablish the link to the source of life. And all that stuff actually becomes a lot less heavy. So reestablish the link to the source, as in the quote of our sensei, and we tap into the tremendous, a tremendous power that is not dependent on circumstances and conditions. Or maybe more precisely, a power that is not affected by our conditioned thoughts and feelings about the situation. And this is the energy that propels the Buddha activity. On that, on the Buddha activity, Chogyam Trumpa wrote, the Buddha activity, the enlightened energy of karma, is the accuracy of never missing an opportunity because we are constantly dealing with situations precisely at any given time. That means that one's mind is taken away from the game of trying to create good karma or bad karma. In that sense, one is not involved in the situation of security, which is what we are involved in with most of the time. Most of the time, a lot of what we do has to do with seeking security. And this is the opposite. Not involved in the situation of security. We do that, we stifle the Buddha activity. So the Buddha activity of enlightened energy and enlightened action, he says, is unconditioned because it uproots the basic dualistic clinging. It does not give birth to anything, but it just exists by itself. Actions begin to develop spontaneously because the given situation is precisely that, precisely what it is, without any dogma or concept involved. In other words, without a story, So the situation itself is free of the karma we may experience. But if attention is on that, on the karma we experience, and if we give it so much weight and so much attention, more so than to the situation, then the situation will be drowned by that. 
And that's what we will experience. So what I was saying before, the bunch of us here doing the same things, having completely different experiences. Are we actually here is the question. So this state he's talking about, the Buddha activity, is an open-ended state of being like that of an, of an infant. Commenting on this case, Yasutani Roshi said, look at the newborn baby, there is neither belief nor disbelief. There is neither philosophy nor the trappings of learning. It is for this reason that we are told to be like little children. This does not mean we have to become amnesiacs. Just to do away with your concepts. A baby has no memory of experiences from former lives and the experiences of this life have not yet begun to develop, to accumulate. It is very much like the person who has come to great enlightenment and rid herself of all delusions. So if we're all born with such an incredible ability to be open-ended like this, how do we become so entangled and so deeply attached and reactive? Is there an actual fundamental difference between babyhood and adulthood on a fundamental level? So in this koan, monk asks Zhaozhu, does a baby, newborn baby, also have the six consciousnesses? And Zhaozhu said, it's like toss, tossing a ball on sweet flowing water. Now to understand the monk's question, it would be helpful to look at Buddhist psychology as it is described in the Yoga Chala school, which was an early Mahayana school, studying the nature of consciousness, also known as the school of mind only or consciousness only. So according to the Yoga Chala school, our mind has eight aspects or as we can, we can say eight consciousnesses. First five are based on the physical senses. They are the consciousnesses that arise when our eyes see form, our ears hear sound, nose smell an odor, tongue tastes something, or our skin touches an object, tactile sensations. The sixth, mind consciousness, arises where our mind contacts an object of perception. The seventh consciousness, manas, is the part of consciousness that gives rise to and is the support of mind consciousness. So the, seventh, the sixth and the seventh are working together. The eight, alaya vijnana, storehouse consciousness, is the ground or base of the other seven consciousnesses. Alaya means abode, vijnana means consciousness. So like Himalaya, the abode of snow, or place of snow. So alaya vijnana. It is called storehouse consciousness since it contains and preserves all the seeds of our past experiences. 
Thich Han describes this storehouse consciousness as having three functions. The first one is to store and preserve all the seeds of our experiences. The, seed buried, the seeds buried in our storehouse consciousness represent everything we have ever done, experienced or perceived. The seeds planted by these actions, experiences, and perceptions are the subject of consciousness. The store consciousness draws together all these seeds just as a magnet attracts particles of iron. The second aspect of store consciousness is the seeds themselves. Store consciousness is, at the same time, both the storehouse and the content that it is, that it is stored in it. The seeds are thus also the object of consciousness. So when we say consciousness, we are referring to both subject and object of consciousness at the same time. The third, the third function of storehouse consciousness is a store for the attachment to a self. This is because of the subtle and complex relationship, as I said before, between manas, the seven consciousness, and the alaya vijnana, the stars consciousness. Manas arises from the stars consciousness, turns around and takes a hold of a portion of that storehouse consciousness and regards this grasp part as a separate and fixed entity we call self. So that gets projected into the sixth consciousness, the mind, or thinking mind, which for us verifies me. All those bits and pieces right, that are there gets clumped together to a conglomerate we then mistaken as who we are as a fixed me. And he said, much of our suffering results from this wrong perception on the part of manas, the seventh consciousness. And this process is initiated when reality entered, enters through one of our senses or the gate of our perceptions, the eye, the ear, the nose, tongue, body, and mind. Buddhism, as you know, considered mind as a sense organ, although it's a more sophisticated sense organ, governing organ that collects information received through all the other senses, and then through a process of categorizing, associating, and concluding, it creates mental formations. And we then follow up on those with words and actions. So this stirs up the seeds that are stored in the store of consciousness and they get triggered based on the information and stimuli that enters through our senses. We can look at these seeds as propensities or tendencies that remain dormant in us until the right conditions manifest. When a seed sprouts, so to speak, we may find ourselves reacting to a situation in an automatic and compulsive way. All of that gives rise to our speech and action, and it maintains a distorted sense of reality and a distorted sense of self. It actually works both ways. 
the distorted sense of self creates a distorted sense of reality, which verifies the same distorted sense of self. So we're not really seeing what's happening. Often, we're seeing ourselves more so than each other. And of course, it's very easy to hate, right? Because in a way, we don't even hate the other. We just hate what we feel about the other. But we feel it. Right? The other may trigger that, but the other triggers what's already in us. It's amazing how far we go with that. So if we consider the way our consciousness operates and how we become heavily entangled and deeply attached to our, condition, our conditioning as adults and how free of them we are as babies, does that mean that the newborn baby is not born with the six consciousnesses, which is what the monk is asking in this case? The commentary says, all the newborn babies equipped with the six consciousnesses, though his eyes can see and his ears can hear, he doesn't yet discriminate among the six sense objects. He doesn't yet discriminate among the six sense objects. At this time, he knows nothing of good and evil, long and short, right and wrong, gain and loss. There's no question of worthiness at that stage. Then it develops. Maybe that's the teaching that's offered to us, the story of Adam and Eve. Right? And the apple of knowledge. The issue is not born from having sense organs and eight consciousnesses. It has more to do with knowing how to use them. Which means letting go of our attachment to the added knowledge we have accumulated over the years. Since the time we knew how to use those without knowing that we know how to use them. And the shifting our attention away from the conditioned karmic reactivities to life itself, as it appears. Or going back to the even ground of not knowing, so we don't discriminate among the six sense objects. To not discriminate. To not judge. It's not the pain in the knees that's the problem. That's easy. It's the difficulty for us not to get caught up in judgmental thinking. That's the pain. Or the real source of pain. Because we cause harm to one another... Not because the knee hurts as much as because of our associations and entanglements and discrimination. Back to Thich Nhat Hanh. 
who said, we practice meditation to train the mind in direct perception, in correct perception, going directly to reality, bypassing the karmic entanglements. When we meditate, he said, we look deeply into our perceptions in order to find out their nature and to discover the elements that are correct and the elements that are incorrect in relation to reality. If you're not mindful, you will believe that your perceptions, which are based on prejudices that have developed from the seeds of past experiences in your storehouse consciousness, are correct. When we have a wrong perception and continue to maintain it, we hurt ourselves and others. In fact, it's probably the most powerful line here, people kill one another over their different perceptions of the same reality. Now, I actually wrote this talk before the war in Israel erupted. But obviously, it's very fitting. Some people asked me about it. Obviously, growing up in Israel, still having family there. Yeah, it's, it's a challenge, right? It's a challenge to be here, to do this to stay focused on what we need to do here when all this is going on there. I don't know how much you know about it, but it's very bad. The level of atrocities is beyond comprehension. But that madness, if anything, it should stimulate us further, encourage us further to do this practice. If we need a reason or a reminder to go deeper in our practice, that's what that is. Because this is what we practice. So we don't create further madness in the world. Hatred is contagious, and so is love. But if all we get into, all we are occupied with is just me and my little story that cocoons me from reality and actually stifles me from loving others, then what kind of energy am I contributing to the world? And when I am able to transcend that, I'll not pay so much attention to that and actually pay attention to others. Again, not to what I think about others. That doesn't matter. Actually paying attention to others and unconditionally loving them. Then what kind of energy am I perpetuating? And this is where it begins, at that level. So when we turn inwardly, we, we are actually, we have front row to the mess, to the source of the mess. So back to the senses. We are born with the, with the inherent capacity to see, hear, smell, taste, touch, taste, and think 
but the complications and entanglements are not found in what is inherent. They are created through the way we use what's inherent. Or misuse. So as practitioners, we need to keep turning our attention back to that which is inherent at birth and learn to trust it more than trusting the mental creations we are so deeply attached to. We don't, we're not just attached to our cherished mental formations. We actually have fallen in, fallen in love with them. And so through the practice, we need to learn to fall out of love with ourselves. In the Upanishads, collection of ancient Indian texts, it says, it is said, not that by which, not that which the eye can see, but that by which the eye can see, that by, by which the eye can see. Know that to be the Brahman, the fundamental reality, and not what people here cherish, or not what you cherish. Not that by which the ear can hear, but that, not that which the ear can hear, not the sound, but that by which the ear can hear. It's the ability to hear that we have to work with, not what comes through. Because that will be distorted if we go back to the basis of it, to the ability to hear, then we are not going to be swayed by what we hear. And then it goes on, and then it says, not that which the mind thinks, but that by which the mind can think. Know that to be the fundamental reality. In other words, go to the source, go to the root, go directly. And the silence and stillness of Sishin offer a, the gateway to the fundamental by which we move. And it is, essentially, it is familiar and in a different way and comforting eventually. But at the beginning, when we get into practice, and it could be a while into it too, it can feel terrifying before it is realized as our intrinsic home. We feel more at home with our cherished opinions, ideas, and entanglements, karmic entanglements, regardless of how harmful they may be. But to go through this gate, we need to release our grip over what we have become infatuated with. We need to be okay with becoming idiots. An ancient master said, my patched garment covering my head, myriad concerns cease. At this time, I do not understand anything at all. Only if you can be like this will you have some small share of attainment. Though an adept is like this, nevertheless, he can't be fooled at all. So don't think that this, is, this means being naive. He is without deceit and without clinging thoughts. He is like the sun and moon moving through the sky without ever stopping and without saying, I have so many names and forms. 
He's like the sky everywhere covering, like the earth everywhere supporting. Since they have no mind, they bring up and nurture myriad beings without saying, I have so many accomplishments. Since sky and earth are mindless, they last forever. What has mind has limits. A person who has attained the path is like this too. In the midst of no activity, he carries out his activities, accepting all unfavorable and favorable circumstances with a compassionate heart. Because that's what comes from that source. We are much more like that, even if we feel very disconnected from that often. Still, it is home. And this is, this is about Zhaozhu, this commentary, right? Because this is where the great Zhaozhu functions. And so he's able to fit the occasion and answer the monk's question by saying, it's like tossing a ball on swift flowing water. But is Zhaozhu talking about the newborn baby? Is he referring to the monk? Or is he pointing us today at us, providing the answer to any question we can possibly think of? Quelling the questions. Hakuin praised Zhaozhu's answer and said, he has a lot of breasts producing sweet and sour at will. There is no explanation to this. It is verbal samadhi. And it is verbal samadhi because when a ball is tossed on swift flowing water, it is ceaseless, it is continuous, it has no fixed point. There's no resistance, there's no knowing, there's no right is better than left, forward is better than backwards. There's none of that. There's just continuous life. And continuous adaptability. How amazingly flowing that is and how deeply stuck we are. Yet we are not. So the monk didn't get it. And later on, he went to ask another teacher, Tutsu, what is the meaning of tossing a ball in swift flowing water? And Tutsu said, moment to moment, non-stop flow. You can adjust position. Tutsu was a contemporary to Zhaozhu, about 40 years younger. One time, the two of them had a short Dharma encounter, which Zhaozhu ended by saying to Tutsu, I've long committed thievery, but you are far worse than me. Mm -hmm. Right, so Zen masters are known to be thieves who will steal what we have come to love and cherish. Take it away. 
just to show us that there is nothing upon which to rely. And it's not a problem or an issue we need to fear. It's actually the other way around. It's, it nurtures something very deep in us. In the verse, he says, the adepts have both discerned where he's coming from, which is, this is referring to Zhaozhu and Tutsu, who see through the monk and steal away the question by showing him that it is essentially baseless. And they point to him the answer by basically saying that the answer is there before the question arises. So before the mind moves, before the mind moves, how can we get to that point of seeing that before the mind moves? When we are so preoccupied with thought after thought after thought after emotion after memory after complaining, How can we get in touch with that? So the action of tossing a ball in swift flowing water, in the Huayan Sutra it says, the Bodhisattva of the eighth stage, which is the stage of immovability, turns the great Dharma wheel in an atom of dust using the wisdom of non-activity at all times, whether walking, standing, sitting, or lying down. He doesn't cling to gain and loss, but lets himself move and flow into the sea of all knowledge. When patriot monks get there, they still must not become attached. They follow the occasion freely. When they have tea, they just drink tea. When they have food, they just eat food. Neither the words concentration or not concentration can be applied to this transcendental matter. And this is what we do, right? We just sit. When we just sit, sit. Get up, get up. Walk, walk. Eat, sleep, shower. Freely. So examine that. We still have some time in this session. Can I release, not just can I release? That is a bit too abstract. But can I release to this moment, to this breath, to this activity? Can I go directly to this? Bypassing the thought or the reactivity pattern. What it is, is unconditional, wholehearted flow. It's pure love. So for the rest of this sashin, please keep going through moment by moment, steadily, with ease. Find your way back to ease if you somehow got entangled in something else. Practice gratitude as a state of being. Just gratitude. 
And do not let the discomfort and irritations distract you from your great capacity, your great capacity to embrace all beings.